last couple of weeks. And we're going to go through Hebrews um, all the way through Easter, uh, leading up to Easter. And the re- oh, yeah, yeah, kids. <laughs> Saw my kids going out. So if you have kids in here, um, you can take them out and out at Kids City. Um, and then Kids City is actually right down the hallway to the right. So, all right, so we've been, we've been going through Hebrews for the past couple of weeks. We'll be going into Easter and um, this has been a really great book for us just to focus on the person of Jesus. So you can see all the banners, why Jesus. First week we talked about his divinity and why it was necessary and why it matters for us that Jesus is divine. Um, last week we talked about Jesus' humanity. So why, why is it necessary? Why, was it, uh, why does it even matter to us that Jesus is fully human? Uh, Daniel talked about temptation and how, how um, in Christ's humanity he experienced full temptation, and and how we can uh, how we can rely on Christ for that. So this week we're going off of divinity and humanity, and we're going to answer and we're going to answer the question of mediator. Why is Jesus our high priest? Why is he our mediator? What does that mean, and why does that matter for us? Why does it matter for us as uh, people, uh, both as followers of Christ? And if you're in here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, why does it matter for you? Um, and then why does it matter for our city? Okay, um, Why does it matter for us with others? Um, so what Catherine just read this morning um, is considered one of the obscure passages in the scriptures. So... Not not a very easy passage to teach out of or preach out of because the person of Melchizedek um, is a very enigmatic figure. Uh, uh, we don't know much about him. He's only mentioned three times in the scriptures or in three different places. Uh, so one is Genesis 14. Another one is Psalm 110. And then Hebrews right before this, chapter 5, I believe, and then this chapter. So chapter 7. So three books he's mentioned. And Hebrews 7, these first three verses, are really just um, a summary of uh, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. So even when Melchizedek is mentioned in those different, in the succeeding passages, we don't learn anything new, really, Um, except that Melchizedek and Jesus are aligned in some way, okay? So Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. That's why this passage is talking about. And then he's also king of Salem, so he is king of peace. So there's both of these things that the writer of Hebrews brings out. So this morning, what I want you to catch is that Jesus, his priesthood, is distinct. It is it is different from the rest of the priests all through the Old Testament into now. So if you read through the book of Hebrews, you see that Jesus is greater than um, the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than uh, the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus is greater than it. it keeps on going. And it shows Jesus as the one who's fulfilling all of these things. So this morning, because his priesthood is distinctly different, what I want you to catch it's, is that it's also distinctly ours, okay? Christ's priesthood is also distinctly ours. Uh, because Jesus is the great high priest, 
if we are in Jesus, we are also high priests. This is the priesthood of the believer that, that uh, Peter talks about and mentions uh, coming off of the Old Testament as well. So in Christ's mediation, he's gone. But he's this like pivotal figure throughout all of biblical history because we see him mentioned at the beginning in the Psalms and now towards the end of the scriptures in, in the book of Hebrews. So righteousness, we're going to go through peace and eternity. Jesus gave those things to us. And then we get to give those things to others as we live out as priests for our city. Okay? Um, so let's start there. So king of righteousness. If we look in, in verse 2 here, uh, the author of Hebrews uh, points it out clearly that Melchizedek and Jesus as, as in the order of Melchizedek. Um, so let me, let me just say a word here about this. Uh, scholars are, are really divided on who this person is. So some people think that he was what they would call uh, a Christophany. This is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, So before Jesus was born, we talked about his humanity last week, remember? So before Jesus was born, um, Jesus uh, didn't have flesh. So he was just the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Technically, Jesus wasn't Jesus yet. The person of Jesus. Is that, you guys following me there? Right. That might be confusing. Jesus, because Jesus received his name when he was born. The son of God he's always been. Okay? Does that make sense? See some confused looks. Jesus has always been the son of God. <laughs> You're following me. From eternity past, when he took on flesh, he became Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. Okay? Um, he is the Messiah from eternity past. So before he took on flesh, he made these, there's these appearances in the Old Testament that a lot of scholars will say, that was Jesus making um, quick appearances. A couple of these have already been with Abraham. One of these is Melchizedek, okay? Most scholars, most scholars believe. But they're still divided on. So Melchizedek could just be this guy who's a representative as the king of righteousness, king of peace, or king of Jerusalem in this point, in this, in Genesis 14. Um, either way, um, Melchizedek, again, he's this like figure that there's this riddle surrounding. So, that's all I'm gonna focus on that. If you have more questions about that later, you can talk to me later. Um, but king of righteousness. So let's start there. What does Melchizedek and Jesus, being in the order of the priesthood, that Melchizedek is, is an order of, which we'll talk later, Jesus being compared to Melchizedek, what does that mean for us? If he's the king of righteousness, if that is Jesus being the king of righteousness, what does that mean for us? So let's talk about what it means first for Jesus. It means two things. It means pardon what we receive, what, what Jesus communicates in his righteousness is pardon and perfection. Okay? So, pardon. Let's talk about pardon first. Pardon is basically God canceling our sin. So, God cancels our sin debt. We receive forgiveness. But, that's not exactly the same thing as being declared righteous. Okay? It's just a part of it. So, the pardon is the first part, that our sin debt is clear, and we receive forgiveness. But the thing is, with a pardon, it's like um, we get forgiven, but there's always, this, there's always this thing like, oh, well, if we mess up again, we need to be pardoned again. 
Okay? Because a pardon is very specific. It, it, it wipes away a, uh, it wipes away a sin, for instance. And I'm talking generally. Like, it wipes away a sin. Um, but if someone messes up again, then you need another pardon. Right? So, for instance, uh, American presidents, generally at the end of their terms, they'll pardon a lot of criminals. So it's just like, um, a traditional act presidents do. So Bill Clinton, at his, at the end of his terms in office, he pardoned the most out of anybody, <laughs> the most criminals. He did like 400 or something. Um, now they're not pardoning just to ease your minds on the American society. Like they're not pardoning like, uh, serial killers and murderers and like that. They're pardoning people who have like, who got caught, like rich people got caught in tax fraud or, um, you know, tax evasion. Um, you know, things like that. Um, uh, so, still, still bad. <laughs> I know. But it's not. <laughs> okay, someone says it's worse. Uh, we'd rather have someone, a murderer on the loose than someone who evaded taxes. Because <laughs> if they evade taxes, they're hurting all of us, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, one person that Bill Clinton um, pardoned was his half brother, Roger Clinton, um, of drug charges. So his brother got, had dr drug charges like a decade earlier, and he pardoned him. Um, now, what's funny is his brother had already served his full sentence, but he was able to expunge his record from those charges. So he, that's another thing that pardoning does. It's, it doesn't just reduce the term or commute a sentence or take away consequences. Um, sometimes it doesn't do that. He already served the consequences, but what it did was it took those charges off his record, so he had a clean record. Problem was, Roger Clinton, within the next year, he got arrested and put in jail for drunk driving and disorderly conduct. So, um, like, the pardon was almost wasted, right? Um, it's like, okay, clean criminal record, and then he goes and stains it right away. Um, that's an earthly pardon. When Jesus gives us a pardon, when we have a pardon from the Father, it's for all of our sin debt, Okay? So if I accept Christ's forgiveness today and I go and mess up tomorrow, um, which will happen, it will happen. It's not a question. Like We will continue to mess up. I'll probably do something stupid an hour after I leave here. Um, why are you laughing? <laughs> uh, that, that will happen. Um, so, uh, But the awesome thing is I'm cleared of that in Christ. Okay? Because I can rest in his grace and his forgiveness. If you think about it, all of my sins were future when Christ made his sacrifice on the cross. Okay? So all of our sins have been washed um, by his blood. Um, thing is, in Christ we receive a pardon. And if that was it, that'd be great, right? That'd be awesome. But the really cool thing is, that's not it. We receive pardon and we receive perfection. God gives us more than just wiping us, wiping our slate clean. He makes us perfect. He gives us His righteousness. That is how the scriptures talk about it. The theological lingo is, is that, uh, Jesus imputes His righteousness to us. Basically, if Jesus is, if, if His righteousness is a robe, He takes it off and puts it around you. It reminds me of like the invisibility cloak in Harry Potter. We just watched the Potter films, so I don't know. Um, I'm not endorsing them. Don't don't take that. Uh, but they do suck you in. Uh, so, like, he puts on the cloak, and you don't see him anymore. 
It's because the cloak covers covers everything. That's this robe of righteousness that that Jesus gives to us. He gives us this robe that that covers us, so that when God sees us, He doesn't see me in my weakness and in my my uh, depravity and my sinfulness and my dirtiness. He sees me in my pure, uh, in my purity and my blamelessness in Christ's righteousness. Um, and that's what we have. We have both pardon and perfection. So Melchizedek, back in Genesis twelve fourteen or Genesis 14, um, again, he is king of righteousness. So he does a few things here. When Abraham comes across Melchizedek, um, the first thing Melchizedek does is bless him. He gives him a blessing. And I won't read it, but three things he gives in the blessing. One, he recognizes the God Most High. So he calls the God that they serve the God Most High. Okay, this is the first time it's basically translated El Elyon, okay? Which is really cool to think about it, because it's like he's El, which is the word for God in Hebrew, but he's not just El. He's El Elyon. He's God Most High. It's like another level. Um, it's like, well, never mind. So uh, <laughs> God Most High. And this is the first time... This name is used in the scriptures of God. And it's one of the first descriptions that we get of God, one of the first names we get of God. So it should tell us, it's very significant for us, um, that, that, that God is above all. And Melchizedek establishes that right off the bat, that the God we serve, he's above all things. Not only that, um, but he reminds Abraham that he's the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. Essentially, that God create, essentially he's saying God's a creator. He's, this word can also be translated as possessor. And he created the heavens and the earth as his temple and dwelling place. Okay? Which this is a distinct allusion to Genesis 1. Um, so you have Genesis 14, and he's saying, remember, God's a creator. God's the possessor of heaven and earth. It's an, it's an allusion in Genesis 1 where we see that God has created this temple uh, in the heavens and earth that, that he dwells in. That's his abode, okay? <clears throat> that's his dwelling place, all right? Um, now, if you want to talk to me about Genesis 1 after this, um, do that. I was just going to, I'll just mention, because this isn't the point to talk about the creation account, but our Western minds look at Genesis 1, the creation account, and we look at material origins. So, hey, let's explain how the stars got here, how the trees got here, how the animals got here. Genesis 1 is actually more like a cosmological argument for functionality. It explains why God created this and what the purpose of it is, not how it got here. Okay, we want to find out, well, well, how how to get how how it got here, um, but it's more of cosmological functionality. Um, I'm going to leave you with that, and that's where I'm getting the temple imagery from. And then, if you want to talk about that later with me, um, I'll uh, I'll we'll talk about it, and then your understanding of Genesis one will be completely transformed. Um, it'll just be so much richer. Um, but the author's purpose here is to say, like, this is God's temple. And so when Melchizedek mentions this in Genesis 14, he's reminding Abraham of that. When God created this, this is because God dwells here and you serve that God. So when you live here, when you breathe here, 
when you pray here, when you work here, when you hang out with friends here, when you do anything here, it's in the presence of God. So God is God most high, but God is also God present that is here among us because this is his temple, this is his abode. Okay. Third thing he reminds them of is that God is sovereign and that he's the deliverer. So right before this passage, um, Genesis 12, God has given Abraham a great promise that he's going to be the father of nations, that he's going to do great things, that the Messiah is going to come through him, that he's going to give him the promised land, that he's going to be this um, father of, of numerous, numerous multitudes. Um, and then right before this passage, Abraham does something really stupid. Uh, what would look really foolish from, from an outside perspective. He is, he basically, basically they're living in this land and, uh, there's this world war going on. Okay. This would be like actual World War One. There's this world war going on. Nations fighting against nations. There's this huge army that comes in and is taking out all these nations. It's taking out all these people. It's defeating all these kings. Abraham is living in one of these countries. And his nephew Lot and his family, Lot's family, gets kidnapped and taken away by this army. Abraham gets 318 of his trained men, which is what the scriptures say, 318 of his trained men, and doesn't think twice because his army has just taken out nations. He just takes 318 men and he goes in like, like a SEAL mission, like a rescue operation. He goes and rescues his nephew and defeats the army with 300 men. Um, and then he comes back. Now, that looks pretty foolish. Like, Abraham says, hey, this army just took out all these nations, but he's got my nephew. So he just goes gets his beard men and goes and, and, and takes them out. Um, why is that? And then right afterwards, Melchizedek meets him and says, remember the God you serve. He's the creator and possessor of heaven, and he's also sovereign and he's um, the deliverer from your enemies. He's, he's the one who did this for you. Okay? Now, if we, had, if we didn't have the promise of Genesis 12, Abraham would have been acting pretty foolishly, right? But Abraham is acting off of what God has already revealed himself to be. A God who is faithful, a God who promises, and he knows that that God who promises this is going to fulfill that promise. So Abraham can do something like that. He can just take 300 men and go conquer an army because he knows that God is using him for a purpose. You follow me there? Like God is using him for a purpose. Abraham lives out of that purpose. He lives out of it. He doesn't live for it. Okay, He lives out of it. So, and then afterwards... Um, the scriptures say Abraham believed in Genesis uh, 15, the following chapter, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Okay? So now we've seen, just seen the king of righteousness. Now Abraham takes that cloak on through his belief. Now he has that righteousness. So what does that mean for us as, as priests in the order of Christ? How do we mediate things? How can we be mediators in terms of righteousness? What is our, what are we supposed to do in that? How do we be obedient in that? So, let's go with pardon perfection first. So pardon, um, we have the power, and I use power precisely, 
Like we have the power to forgive. Just as Christ forgives, we have the power to forgive. We have the power to cancel someone's debt against us, just as Christ has canceled his debt against us. And that's the power we have. Are you holding on to someone's debt that you have the power to release them of? You have the power to set someone free, and you're holding on to a debt. And God's given you that power as a mediator of his righteousness to release the other person of that debt. If you're doing that to a brother or sister in Christ, shame on you. That should not happen. That should not happen between brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're holding on to a debt that you can cancel, if you're doing that to someone outside of the faith, then you're bringing curse and condemnation on yourself. And Christ has died so that we, we, don't, we are free from curse. We are free from condemnation. And instead, you're becoming a mediator of curse and condemnation instead of forgiveness and blessing. Forgiveness is such a powerful tool that we have in our arsenal as Christians. Now, we would forgive others when, and guess what? They don't deserve it. And that's okay. You don't deserve it either. That's not the point whether they deserve it or not. It's not the point whether they wronged you or not. You have the power. The ball is in your court to forgive. And I don't know where you guys are this morning in terms of, in terms of someone having wronged you or, um, or holding a debt that, that you need to release. But that debt isn't weighing the other person down as much as it's weighing you down. And you cannot live as a mediator of righteousness by holding on to someone's debt and holding it over their heads. Release yourself of that this morning. So that's pardon. Second thing is perfection. Not only do we have the ability to forgive debt, to, to, to cancel someone's debt, but we have the distinct priestly ability to lift others up, to encourage one another, to exhort, to edify. If you were in body life groups this past week, that's what we did this past week. We, we practiced doing that, encouraging, edifying, lifting others up. Trinity Life here, we were creating a culture of affirmation um, where, we, where we can do that, where our first inclination is not to tear down, our first inclination is to build one another up. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't you love to be in a family like that or a workplace like that or um, a, uh, you know, social setting like that? Um, the cool thing is the Christian community, we're supposed to be like that. We get to be like that all the time. So you should expect that when you come in here that that's going to happen. And I'm going to say, I'm going to lift you up. So here's an example. I was in South Carolina. So hospitable. They welcomed me in. Um, but I talked to this lady um, who came up to me after one of the services. And she's probably in her late 40s um, and told me she had been an IMB missionary. So IMB is the International Mission Board. Um, Daniel and I are church planners out of the North American Mission Board. 
So this is just the, that's for North America, and then the IMB is the other arm for a foreign mission. The IMB. So she had been with them for 12 years. And I was like, oh, great, this is awesome. Let's, and towards the end of the conversation, she says, well, you know, it, it actually ended really badly. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, what? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, well, her son, at eight years old, got, they're overseas, I think, in North Africa. Um, her son, at eight years old, got burned badly. And um, her husband ended up denouncing the faith. So her husband was a missionary as well. He ended up denouncing the faith and uh, left the family. He just left. He divorced. He left his kid. He just left everything he knew. Um denounced his faith, and here she is 20 years later, uh, 15, 20 years later, um, still picking up the pieces. Um, and she's still a missionary. She's still serving Jesus. She said, I don't know why these things happen, um, but I've just tried to be obedient in serving Christ. Um, and she came up to me because she was inspired by my story. <laughs> Um, she ended up inspiring me. Um, she said she still serves Christ. Her son is doing well. Um, I looked at, I looked in her tear-filled eyes, and I said, and "This was a distinct opportunity for me to mediate righteousness and perfection to her, to edify her, to exhort her, to show her who she is in Christ." And I said, "The writer of Proverbs says." The crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold. And you are a precious metal. That's what the author is saying. You've been through the crucible, you've been through the furnace, and you're a precious metal in God's sight. Live like that. She just began weeping for joy. Um, that I would even say something like that to her. That's the distinctability we have as believers. To give to somebody else Words of power like that. That's what this book is. This gives us power for life. And we get to mediate that truth to others. We get to give it to others. So Jesus, he not only just cancels our debt, he makes us rich. That's the beauty of him imputing his righteousness to us. We're not just debt free. We're rich. He gives us the wealth of everything, of heaven in him. So, king of righteousness also, king of peace. So what does Jesus mediate to us in terms of peace? What does this mean? Uh, two things. One, reconciliation with one another, which we've, we've hit on briefly, uh, and also reconciliation to God. So Ephesians chapter two, uh, yeah, chapter two makes this really clear that, that Christ, in Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul uses this language. He, that Christ, when he died and rose again, he killed this dividing wall of hostility. He killed it. He destroyed it. He demolished it. He uses those words. He abolished it. Um, and he broke it. And so uh, because of that, now, through Jesus, he's our mediator, which means we have direct access to the Father. Okay? We have direct access through Christ's blood. So we don't need to go to a high priest anymore. Because Jesus is the great high priest. Okay? Um, that's awesome. So this reminded me of 
Uh, do you guys remember dial-up internet? I see you guys are a little young, but... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I see you're not in your head. Uh, when the internet first came out, um, when it was, like, wide... When it was uh, uh, starting to get widespread, it was... We used to have to get these discs. Like, AOL put out these, like, free, free discs, right? You guys remember that? <laughs> when I was in... Like high school and university, I would hoard those things. If they're handing them out for free, I'd like go and then come back and then go come back. Oh, uh, yeah, like have a whole book bag stuff for them. So that's how the internet used to work. And remember, you used to have to dial into a landline, right? So you'd have the all that. Um, and uh, sometimes, do you remember when it wouldn't work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it, it wouldn't work because like someone's using the phone. So you couldn't use a phone because you had to take it out. Um, and then if a lot of people were on at one point, um, it'd be really slow. Like you think your phones are slow now? Like I look at my iPhone, I'm like, gosh, this thing's so slow. Um, just 15 years ago, I didn't have anything like <laughs> iPhone. Just like five years ago, I didn't have anything like that in my hand. Now we have, now I can access the internet anywhere, except apparently here in Jarvis, we're having troubles, <laughs> um, but anywhere, um, you can be almost anywhere in the world and have uh, Wi-Fi, broadband, internet access. It's so beautiful. Um, you can do it on your phone, your tablet, uh, your, your uh, laptop, all these things, right? Um, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's given us direct access, much like Al Gore did when he invented the internet. Uh, <laughs> according to him, that's that's what he did. Um, so, uh, what is? Let me just say that that was the plan from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, that was the plan that we would have direct access to God. We see that Adam and Eve, they're walking with God in the cool of the day. We see even after the fall, because the fall kind of ruins that for us. When sin enters the world, we have this dividing wall of hostility. But even then, God was creating a people, the people of Israel, to be a mediator for, um, <clears throat> for the rest of the world. Um, but even then, and this happened in Exodus 19, where, where Moses goes up in Exodus 20, gets the Ten Commandments. At first, what God wanted was to have all the people be the mediator. But they got scared, so they backed away from the mountain. So Moses becomes the mediator. Okay, And uh, because of that, that's why Hebrews in chapter 3 or 5 points out that Jesus is the greater Moses. Because now Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great mediator. So it was always supposed to be like that. Now through Jesus' blood, we don't taint God's presence with sin. Okay? We can be in God's presence because we're not tainting it with our sin. Because we're covered in his blood and we're clothed in his righteousness. Melchizedek in Genesis 14, remember he's the king of peace. The second thing he does, uh, he blesses Abraham, but then he also offers Abraham bread and wine. He gives him a clear sign of friendship. He gives him friendship and a clear sign of peace, friendship, and welcomes him in. And in turn, Abraham, as, as Catherine read, gives him a tenth of everything. Um, and this isn't just a sign of friendship, it's a sign of uh, Melchizedek's position. On April 4th of 
this year, so next month, uh, we'll be we'll be in our third installment of our Easter extravaganza. So this is an event. Yeah, we should be excited about that. This is an event that started out with two families and Michelle and Elaine, <laughs> um, who didn't know what to think about us then. We just moved here just a few months before, met them, and they're like, yeah, I guess we'll help you. Daniel probably like pressured them nonstop. Um, <laughs> she said that's accurate. <laughs> so they helped us out. We put on this event. Um, the next year it turned into a Trinity Life event. This year it's a Trinity Life event in cooperation with the city of Toronto. Why? Yeah, that's awesome. That doesn't happen in our city, by the way, that the city of Toronto is going to help put on a Christian event about Easter um, in a city facility that they're giving to us for free. Um, like, that's awesome. Um, and they're giving us more stuff. Like, why? Why is that? Peace and reconciliation. Over the past two years, they've seen religious reconciliation happen between Christians and Muslims. A large portion of the people who come to this event are Muslims. I would say 70% almost. Like, why? Free candy. Um, <laughs> um, no, it's the love of Jesus that we are sharing. Okay, it's the love of Jesus. That's all it is. It's peace. It's saying we can love you in Jesus' name. And we want to do that. And that's why we, we showcase those. So they've seen racial reconciliation, religious reconciliation, and they, and they want to be a part of it behind the scenes. Um, this reminds me of, of, uh, and so this event, uh, I was talking to someone about this event when I was in South Carolina, and they're like, so, have you guys grown from this event? Have you seen people come in from this event um, into your services? And I was like, well, uh, we've seen a few, but um, that's actually not our metric for success. Uh, we don't measure how many people come in from that event and say, okay, that event was a success. Um, that's the case we're failing. Um, we, the metric for success we use is not what, what would be considered a Trinity Life win. It's a kingdom win. And we've seen that over the past three years. Like, that's a long time. Three years to look for a win. Um, we've seen little wins along the way. When the city jumped on board, that's a kingdom win. Because we see that they're seeing something that the church hasn't offered in this community before. And they want a part of it. Um, so we got to think bigger than Sunday service. And Trinity Life isn't the Sunday service. we got to think bigger than Trinity Life here. Um, it reminds me of uh, the Berlin Wall. So 1989, uh, for 30 plus years, the Berlin Wall has been set up as a, as a divider between East and West Germany, between communist Germany and uh, more of a socialist democratic Germany. And uh, this wall was just a... I remember when I was young watching an Alvin and the Chipmunks episode on the Berlin Wall, and that's always stuck with me, and how they try to, like, escape to get to the other side and, like, smuggle things. And um, and guess what Alvin did <laughs> to bring the wall down? <laughs> he sang a Michael Jackson song. <laughs> I don't really think that's how it works. David, David Hasselhoff would disagree. He thinks he brought it down with his songs, but I don't think that's, that's right. Um, so Berlin Wall in 1989, people started, this is a, this is really crazy because they passed this edict. They passed this thing in the government that was supposed to be effective later, but when it got released, everyone thought it was immediately effective. So people rushed the wall and started just tearing it down. But this is a huge wall. 
So they had like sledgehammers, they had chisels and hammers, they're using big things and small things, and visibly, you couldn't see a whole lot of damage. It was taking little pieces here, little pieces there. Um, but eventually, they were able to pull down, after a couple of hours doing that, a whole section of the wall just came crumbling down. That's what we need to think of in terms of the kingdom. Right? Because what they didn't see were the fractures, the internal fractures that were happening all inside the wall that a sledgehammer was doing on the inside or a chisel was doing. Um, and that's what, that's what peace does. Um, it, it takes down this dividing wall of hostility that Jesus took out. Okay, um, Jesus killed that wall, but that wall is still very much present between uh, the church and the city or between uh, Christians and Muslims or between Christians and atheists or between you and your coworker or you and your mom or you and uh, a friend or, or whoever. Um, Jesus has gotten rid of that, and it's our duty. We get to offer bread and wine, like Melchizedek did. We get to offer that to our city, to our friends, to our societies. Don't depend on other people to offer that for you. We're the mediators of peace. You are a mediator of peace. You need to offer the bread and wine. You can't wait for someone else to do it. And this goes even, if I, let's say Chris and I have an argument which is pretty impossible. We're pretty two fun-loving guys. <laughs> um, but let's say we have an argument, and Chris is totally wrong, which is probably more possible. <laughs> Chris is completely in the wrong, um, but he wrongs, let's say Chris wrongs me. Um, it's not my duty as a meteor of peace to brood in that or wait for Chris to realize he's a meteor of peace also. I get to be that for him. And then in turn, he gets to be that for me. And that's what Melchizedek did for Abraham, and Abraham did it back. Okay? He offered peace, and Abraham offered peace. So specifically, if it's brothers and sisters in Christ, you should know and you should trust the Spirit in them. You should believe in the Spirit of God in that person. Okay? That's what genuine community is. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He's planning churches all around. He doesn't know these people, but he doesn't believe in their gifts and their abilities and in their intellectual capacity and their character. He believes in the Spirit of God who is dwelling and working inside them, transforming their heart and their soul, making them more like Jesus. And I get to believe that in Chris, and he can believe that in me. Even when we can't see it very clearly, Okay, we get to act in faith that the Spirit is working in, in each of us. So, king of righteousness, king of peace, last thing, king of eternity. Okay, so this verse 3 here says that, speaking of Melchizedek, and also um, talking about how this, this applies to Christ, says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Like I said, Melchizedek just shows up on the scene. He's there, and then he's gone. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, so what does Jesus mediate for us in terms of eternity? What does he give to us? What is he a, a conduit for us for? Um, Jesus has exchanged the mortal for what's immortal. So he's exchanged what's mortal for what's immortal. He's given that to us. 
He's exchanged our mortal temporal perspective for that which is eternal. So he's taken this perspective that is conditioned by this world, that gets bogged down in the little things and the minutiae of this world. He's saying, no, 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 you have an eternal perspective now. And this is Second Second Corinthians chapter 4, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. We've been given an eternal perspective that is a view towards eternity, that isn't a view towards tomorrow, that is a view towards eternity, which makes it a view for living today in the present. So he gives us those things. He's conquered death. He's given us eternal life. Those are things that Jesus mediates to us. So what does that mean for us? What can we mediate uh, with the eternity of Jesus in mind? How do we mediate eternity? How do we mediate Jesus Christ and his eternity through how we live, how we work, how we act, how we um, live in our families, how we write, and what we value, and how we speak, and our priorities, um, et cetera, et cetera. I keep on going on and on. Um, and the only other mention of Melchizedek in the scriptures, David points us out in the Psalms, that when Jesus comes, Melchizedek here, he's in the order of a priest who is eternal. Now, this is put in, in juxtaposition to uh, the, the Aaronic order, so the order of Aaron and his priesthood. So Aaron's the first, the first priest under the law in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Okay? So if you're, if you're not a believer in here this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, just hang on for a moment. Um, uh, Aaron is this first priest under the law. God's given the law because the people didn't want to approach the mountain, remember? So God says, okay, then you're going to have to live this way. This law is going to direct you to your imperfections, to your sin. It's going to show you your sin so that you do come to me. Okay? So this law was never intended to say, hey, you guys need to live this way, this way, this way, this way. It's just going to show you your sin so that in that you say, yes, you do need me. Okay? So Aaron is the first mediator of that. So from then on, everyone who was a priest, which if you're familiar with, with uh, Jewish families today, the, the word Cohen. You know, if you're at Cohen, Cohen Brothers, this, he's directed, I know you guys, um, Cohen Brothers, like, Cohen means priest in Hebrew. So this is the line of priests in, in, uh, that was that, they could trace their lineage back, uh, to Aaron. So Aaron establishes this line of priests. Um, so if I was born, and I wanted to be a priest, but my last name isn't, isn't Cohen, or I'm not part of the Levites, then I can't do that. Um, you have to be established through lineage. Well, Melchizedek isn't that type of priest. It says he's a priest of eternity. There's no lineage. He has no genealogy. And that's why Jesus is of this order. And that's why it's important that Jesus is of this order, not of the order of Aaron. And the psalmist, David, picks up on this in Psalm 110. And he says, Jesus the Messiah is going to be of the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. He's going to, priest that, he's going to be a priest that supersedes the temporary priesthood. That priesthood was always set up to be temporary. Not, not, it wasn't supposed to be fully there. So, um, so Jesus supersedes that. And I say all that because what the author of Hebrews does here, whoever's writing Hebrews, he's reading everything in the Old Testament. 
which is why he's, he's, you can see it all through, through his writing. He's reading all this Old Testament. And, and why that's important is because what, what the author is doing here is overcoming intellectual barriers to the faith. So he's writing to Jews here. He's writing to he, the Hebrew people. And he's, and they have this barrier. They're saying, well, Jesus, he's not of the ironic order. He's not in that lineage. He's born of a carpenter. And, uh, and they said his mom was a virgin. Like, he's not, he's not in that order. Um, and the author here is saying, no, he's in a, he's in an eternal order, not a temporary one. So he's overcoming intellectual barriers for, for the people, for the original readers of this text, because they would say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. He's giving them, he's taking away their temporary, temporal, ephemeral perspective and giving them an eternal one. He's saying, look towards eternity. So for us, how do we remove intellectual barriers for the gospel? That's a key part of um, mediating eternity. How do we help people exchange the temporal for the eternal? How do I help you do that? You think about it, the, the larger issues in our day, generally speaking, for, for intellectual barriers, um, I mean, this is like uh, evolution, atheism, science, you know, all those are often pitted against Christianity, um, which science isn't against Christianity. I don't know why there's such a divide, but um, they're often pitted on two sides, right? So there are these intellectual barriers for, for people who, who uh, are scientific. Um, in your life specifically, you might not deal with those things. In your life specifically, it's how do I pay the bills? It's um, how do I overcome depression, lust, sin, anger, pride? How do I buy things I want? I mean, these are all questions we deal with on a daily basis. How do I um, pay for my school? How do I pass this test? How do I get a new job? You know, all, all these things. These are the temporal things that, that weigh us down, that take our perspective off of the eternity. But remember, we are mediators of the gospel. We are mediators of truth. We are mediators um, for each other. It's the priesthood of believers. Uh, and Second Timothy says that there is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. A lot of, uh, or some, some Christian traditions have taken that to mean, well, um, that means Jesus is the only mediator, and we can't mediate. That's not a responsibility. Um, but simp- really, what this passage is saying is Jesus is the chief mediator, and we get to mediate through that. This is where I think the Catholic tradition has uh, a lot to offer us um, in mediators. Um, they, they believe that to a certain extent. And we've, we've kind of removed ourselves out of that role that we get to mediate these things to others and to our city. Um, and if you, if you look in this passage for Second Timothy, for instance, you'll see right before that, Paul says, hey, it's your responsibility, your privilege to make prayers, intercessions, supplications for everybody. And afterwards, he says, I'm the apostle and mediator of truth. I get to mediate the gospel to you guys. So... Paul establishes that we're that, he's doing that, that Jesus is in there as a chief mediator. Uh, we need to, um, we need to take that back, back on us. So, why don't you guys come up in closing? We get to mediate righteousness, peace, 
We get immediate eternity. <clears throat> Those are heavy things, right? Those are big things. Those are eternal things. Those are things that, uh, when I say, oh, I, I, I get to do that. Am I doing that? I mean, how am I doing that? Um, I just want to ask you this morning, what are you doing with your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you a mediator of righteousness? Are you a mediator of peace? Are you a mediator of, of eternity for others? Missy and I had this discussion uh, this week. Just what are we doing with our lives? Like, are we doing, I asked ask her, are we doing something with our lives that is going to make a difference in this world? Are you asking yourself that question? I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. What are you doing with your life? Are you okay with just being comfortable and uh, working to get your house and your car and your education and then living a comfortable life here and coming to church on Sunday mornings and giving to some nonprofits. Is that is that the extent of your life? Is that the extent of your Christian faith? If it is, then you're not living the life that Jesus wants you to live. Our, our vision statement is discovering identity and destiny in Christ, influencing our city and the world. If you're not doing that, then you're not living to your full potential in Christ. I just want to tell you this morning, your identity, your purpose in life isn't to be a small business owner. It isn't to be a doctor. It isn't to be a musician. It isn't to be a pastor. It isn't to work in the field that you work in. It isn't to have a baby, although I love my daughters. It isn't to be married, although I love my wife. And I love the church, but my identity is not as a pastor. My identity is in Christ. My destiny is not as a pastor. My purpose in this life, your purpose in this life is not to be a doctor, teacher, uh, office worker, uh, mother, father. Your destiny in life is to be Christ. Did you hear me correctly? It's to be Christ. His spirit dwells in us. We need to tap into that. There's this theologian in Eastern, Eastern Orthodox theologian named David Bentley Hart. He speaks of God's eternity as the correct measure of our identity, the proper context for our destiny, and the true object of our hope. In, East, in Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox idea, there's, uh, there's, well, there's this idea called theosis, which uh, is, in the Protestant tradition, we would call it sanctification, but it, sanctification is a reductionistic view of what theosis actually is. Theosis is um, 
partaking in the divine nature, which is in the scriptures. This is direct from the scriptures. It's partaking in the divine nature. It's, it's we become like God. We become more divine as we discover our identity and destiny in Christ. It's mysterious. I don't get it. Protestants, we've kind of shied away from that. So like, oh, well, we're, we don't want to say we're divine. That's not what we're saying. Um, but we partake in the divine nature. That means something. We put on Christ's righteousness. That means something. Christ's spirit dwells in us. He lives in us. He breathes in us. We sang this earlier. That means something. So it's more than just becoming holy and set apart, which is what sanctification is. It's becoming Christ. So when I say your identity isn't in those things, that it's in Christ, or your purpose, your destiny is in those things, it's in Christ. We need to operate out of that. And that's how we influence our city and the world. That's how we influence our city and the world through being a doctor, teacher, lawyer, mom, dad, whatever you are. Gregory of Nyssa says this. He's a 4th century church father. He calls it epectasis. He says, epectasis is this. And he's referring to this, this um, idea of theosis that it's the stretching of the finite, which would be us, the stretching of the finite into the infinite. It's this eternal stretching where we are being spread out in our finitude. Because me, I exist here. This is it. I exist here. I don't even exist right here unless I move over. I exist right here. But he says when we partake of the divine nature, it's this infinite stretching out of who we are because we're being stretched out of us into the Father, being stretched out of us into Christ. So let's stop living as people of finitude and finiteness. And let's start living as people of righteousness, peace, eternity. Because we serve the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that...